0: I need your help this morning. Uh, there's a debate going on in our carpool. Uh, I take uh, our kids to school and uh, one kid from two other families on our street. And um, on November 1st, an intense debate uh, took place. It's still in the works. Uh, 94 5 is our radio station of choice. And 94 5, I don't know if you knew this, you guys probably don't ever listen to the radio. Uh, I've got a 2009 vehicle and just doing the whole, uh, you know, things off your phone. It's a little difficult in a 2009 car. So we listen to 94.5. And 94.5 on November 1st switches over to just pure Christmas music. We got a couple of kids in the car. They think they're all about their Christmas music. And we got several. We got a few others in the car that are passionately against Christmas music until this upcoming Friday. So when should you start listening to Christmas music? November 1st or the day after Thanksgiving? It's an intense debate. Or maybe you're even saying, listen, here's the better question. The better question is whether we should sing, sing Christmas music all the year round. Now, regardless of your preference, we all sing Mariah, All I Want for Christmas. We all sing Nat King Cole, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. We all sing Taylor as she belts out last Christmas. We'd love to listen to it. But let me ask you, how would you feel about singing these songs in... Public. I get lots of emails from all kinds of Christian ministers. I get one from a church planner. It's from Connecticut. And he told me that uh, a tradition that his church has started has been Christmas caroling. And the very first thing I thought was, I would not be caught dead knocking on strangers' doors singing in public. Now, you might love the idea. If you do, I'm all for it. We'll put it in the bulletin next week. We'll promote it. But I won't be there. Why does singing in public feel so weird, even at Christmas? Well, a few reasons quickly come to mind. Maybe we're insecure about our voices. Maybe we don't know the words. Maybe we resent being forced into an activity. I don't know. But I think deep down we really want to. I mean, there are other times we love to sing. I mean, think about uh, the seventh inning stretch at a baseball game. You sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Gladly. There's this certain pleasure about it, about seeing with thousands of other people, even if your team is losing, it has this bonding effect. I experienced something similar a couple times this fall. One was at Railbird. I was singing Dave Matthews songs with all my might with tens of thousands of other people. Loved it. I sang uh, It's a Party, more like Screaming It's a Party by Waka Flocka at the UK-Florida game. There was an ecstasy about it. Now, maybe you've done it with karaoke. I haven't. I'd love to do karaoke for some reason. I never have in my life. If you have a karaoke party, I will come to that. And I'll sing any Stevie Wonder song you want. But I think this whole lack of singing points to something much deeper than not knowing the words, don't you? I think it points to a lack of joy. And some of it's merited when you look out at the world. You see the political divisions. You see the public shootings. You see the record high numbers of drug overdoses or suicides. and make it hard to sing. So we get to Christmas and we so badly want some joy in our lives so that we settle for sentimentality. We sing these shallow songs. We know it's trite, but we know if we don't sing over sentiment, then we'll just end up in a puddle of tears. So what we need is a substantive song. What we need is something meaty. What we need is a satisfying song, a song that endures. And that's what we have in Luke chapter 1. So let's read it together. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. If you've not been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been, we started in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. In those first four verses, Luke gives us the purpose for his writing of this gospel. And his purpose is that we might have certainty. And he follows up that purpose statement with two miracle stories. Uh, The first is a miracle story about Elizabeth, who's old and barren, and she becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. And the second miracle story we heard last week from Mac, and Mac told us how Mary, a young virgin, has become pregnant. They're both miracles, both pregnancy stories. But the second one's more hard to believe, isn't it? That a virgin could become pregnant. That a mere mortal could give birth to the Son of God. It's hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow for Mary. Mary. It's also hard for her to accept because, not just because of the miraculous nature, but also because of what it will do to her. She's going to have to endure the shame of being pregnant while unmarried. Nonetheless, we see her beautiful submission in verse 38 last week, didn't we? When she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I know it sounds good, and it is. But there's no joy here. It's just this willingness to believe God at His Word. Have you ever been there? You've submitted to God's ways without really wanting to? Your submission was purely motivated by your allegiance? Well, I'm here this morning, brother and sister, to tell you that's okay. God honors your submissions. But others of you, you've not been willing to submit. You're not going to submit until you have overwhelming joy. And I'm here this morning to tell you that's dangerous. God will not be played like that. Even if you get the joy you're demanding, the joy that you so badly want, you need to know that your allegiance, if it's dependent on your joy... Will be short lived because your faith is built on a feeling alone and that feeling cannot be sustained. But at the same time, I want you to see from our text this morning that God wanted more from Mary than just her submission, just her allegiance. He wanted submission that partners with joy, and when that happens, it is a powerful cocktail. So, For Mary to get the joy she needs, God sends her, according to the first verse of our passage, verse 39, He sends her on a journey 70 miles away to the hill country. And the hill country is where Elizabeth lives. And when she gets there, she's greeted by the in utero John the Baptist and Elizabeth. John the Baptist, according to verse 44, says he leaps for joy. So here you have fetal Jesus making fetal John dance. That's how excited John was. He's already fulfilling the calling of his life, which is to announce Christ's coming. And he's not even born yet. But he's not the only one who's excited. His mother Elizabeth was too. You saw it. Verse 42 to 45. She sings a song. It's pretty remarkable if you think about it that Elizabeth would sing to Mary. I mean, Elizabeth is clearly the superior. She's the daughter of Aaron. She's the wife of a priest. She's the elder of these two women. Moreover, Elizabeth has had the biggest excitement of her life by being pregnant herself. But rather than thinking of her own good news, she praises God for what he's doing in Mary. There's no hint of jealousy. There's just praise. And Elizabeth shouts praise. And that's when the penny drops for Mary. That's when the light bulb goes off for Mary. That's when things finally click for Mary. She goes from bare allegiance to allegiance coupled with joy. And then she sings the Magnificat. So when you hit verse 45... When Mary starts to sing, I want you to picture the four characters. You got them? You've got two pregnant women and two in utero boys. And the presence of the in utero Jesus has caused two women to sing and one in utero boy to dance. And this should be no surprise to any of you who know Jesus. Because we know that joy comes whenever anyone recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. And the joyous nature of the gospel is and must be musical. And the themes of our music, the lyrics of our song, are found in the Magnificat. There are two. In verses 46 to 50, you see that there's grace for the humble... And in the rest of the song, starting in verse 51, you see that there's grace for the arrogant. So I want you to walk through these. So if you, if you have your Bible, I'm going to walk through each of these lines, all right? We're going to put them up on the screen too, but if you want to see in your Bible, go for it. All right, the grace for the humble. There's five different lines here I want to point out. The first one is, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. All right, now remember, this is Mary who's singing. And as Protestants, we don't give Mary the attention she she should get. Maybe you're afraid of seeming Catholic, but she is the mother of God. No one else can say that they grew God. No, it sounds like heresy, but it's remarkable. But she is a sinner. She needed a Savior, and she knows it. That's why that, la- that last phrase, my Savior. And you might, like Mary, you might give a cent to being a sinner. That's not big news to you. You would say, I'm not perfect. You wouldn't deny it. But you'd also say, ever since maybe the worship service started, or the sermon started, you've been getting a hint. Man, I don't, my joy quotient's pretty low. Well, how can you know you're a sinner and your joy quotient be low? There's lots of reasons, but... One of them is, it might be that your sense of your sin is general in nature. And when your sin is general in nature, or that is generic, then all you need is a generic or general Savior. And generic Saviors won't make you sing. But when your sin gets specific, when your sin gets particular, then and only then do you need a specific or particular Savior, and His name is Jesus... And he can make you sing. Grace for the humble. All right, look at the next line. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I want you to think about when you've been in a humble estate. Maybe it's because you were sick. Maybe some tragic happened in your life. Maybe you were suffering the consequences of your own sin. Maybe you were suffering the consequences of living in a fallen world. I don't know what it was. But when were you in a humble estate? Isn't it hard to believe that God looks on you when you're in a humble estate? But he does. His eyes are turned towards you. He sees you. He's not put off by you. You have his full attention. And when you know that, and you're in a humble estate, guess what? You'll sing. Look at the next line. Generations will call me blessed. Blessed. Mary blessed. I mean, think about who she is. She doesn't exactly exude the state of what we would deem as blessedness, does she? I mean, she's poor. She's publicly outcast as a woman having a baby out of wedlock. She's a nobody from nowhere, and now she's convinced that generations will call her blessed. All because of what God has done in her. Same's true for you, brother and sister. Generations will call you blessed because of what God has done in you. And when you know that, guess what? You will sing. Next line The mighty's done great things for me. Yeah, he has. She's pregnant and she's a virgin. It's a miracle. I know that that's not what God's done to you, but you've experienced a miracle too if you're a Christian. You've been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from a state of sin and misery to a blessed state of salvation in a redeemer. A state of cursedness to a state of blessedness. So yeah, the Almighty has done great things for you too. And when you know that, you'll sing. Look at the next line. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Mary now knows in this moment when the pennies drop, when John the Baptist has danced and Elizabeth has sung, She's heard from the angel of the Lord. She now knows that mercy's been dumped on her head. She knows the favor she's experiencing has nothing to do with the quality of her character. It has everything to do with being chosen by a merciful God. Brother and sister, the same's true for you. You have the Son of God living in you too through the Holy Spirit. And He's not there because your pedigree He's not there because your personal holiness. He's there because you too have been chosen. And when you know that, you'll sing. So here you have all these five lines, verses 46 to 50, and they all reflect the same thing. There's grace for the humble, and that'll cause you to sing. But the second half of the song is about grace for the arrogant. It might make you scratch your head. How can God have grace for the arrogant? Well, that's what he's talking about right here. And there's three different groups of people. In verse 51, you see it. It says that that there are those who are scattered, that scatters the proud in their thoughts of their heart. Scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. See, when when you're all about yourself, you're thinking about yourself all the time. Even if you're conversation, you're thinking, how does this other person perceive me? What do they think? I'm going to do this chore. I'm going to do this activity. I'm going to do this project. What are the people who see it, what are they going to think? And guess what you are? You're scattered in the thoughts of your mind. Or when you're really smart, when you can solve things, just, give you, just lock you in a room long enough, you'll figure something out. You see a problem, you think you can come up with a solution. it's are proud of your intellect. You're stuck in your own thoughts. I'm not saying that the intellect's bad, but it can lead to pride. Look at verse 52. There's a second kind of pride that he talks about, a certain kind of, a different kind of arrogance. And it's those who will be be brought down from the mighty, will bring down the mighty from their thrones. He's talking about pride of position. And those of us, a lot of us are white collar, You might not think you're particularly accomplished, but only 24% of Lexington has a college degree. Almost all of us have at least a college degree. Why do we do that? Do we do it just because we're smart? No, it's because we can tend towards, we're not guaranteed to, but we can tend towards having a power of position that we want to be thought of in a certain way. We want to have a certain reputation. We want to sit on the thrones of our own imagination as important. We want to sit on the thrones of other people's imagination as important. You might not sit on the throne, but you might sit on the top of the organizational chart. And Mary's singing here, and there's grace for the arrogant, that they can be brought down. Look at verse 53. There's a third kind. The proud will be sent away empty. So there's a pride about money. Some of you you don't care about your intellect. You don't care about your reputation. You don't care what other people think about you, but what you want is cash money. You want to buy your pleasure and fun experiences. You want to buy the pleasure of having creature comforts, having your life be luxurious. You want money to give you long-term security. And Mary says that the rich can be sent away empty. See, here's the thing. If you're smart, if you're impressed by your resume, if you're impressed by your status, your title, your reputation, if you're impressed by your money, watch out. Watch out for God's grace. God might be so kind to you to come in hot and come in hot and knock you down from your throne. He might come in hot and take away all your money. He might come in hot and show you just how your intellect will not solve the world's problems. And when he does, I exhort you to repent. Don't shuck it off as bad luck. Don't shuck it off as God being vindictive. No, 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 no. See it as God's grace. God is graciously bringing you low. He wants you to join in Mary's song. See, arrogant people don't sing. Your reputation won't make you sing. Your money won't make you sing. Your wits won't make you sing. But God's grace will. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas season, I want you to see that Jesus came so that you would sing. He made Mary sing. He made Elizabeth sing. He made John the Baptist dance. You don't have to muster it up. You don't have to pull it out of thin air. He's given you something thick something solid, something sturdy to sing about, and it's himself. And it's a song you can sing all the year round. It's a song you can sing your whole life long. It's a song about a Redeemer, a Redeemer who came as the fulfillment of a promise from the beginning of the world. It's a song about a Redeemer who came through miraculous conception, it's a song about a Redeemer who came to poor parents who experienced public shame and intense suffering. It's a song about a Redeemer who lived an anonymous, mundane life for 30 years as a, car- as a carpenter. It's a song about a Redeemer who worked miracles for the poor in his public ministry. It's a song about a Redeemer who was rejected by the political and religious elites. It's a song about a Redeemer who died the death of a cr- criminal. It's a song of a Redeemer who came to rise to prove that death, sin and, and Satan would be vanquished. The song about our Redeemer who who, bank, who went to heaven and who sits there as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. How's your singing? Let's pray. Oh Father, we want to sing this song about you. We uh, readily admit our joy quotient is low. And would you increase it? Would you? Uh, show us that if we are in a humble estate, that it's a good time to sing. And Lord, I pray that if we find ourselves in a prideful position, or that we would ask you to get us to a place where we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen.